Brands looking to embed financial services in their products want to get to market quickly, and they don't want the heavy lift of building finance workflows and managing regulation. 11FS Foundry is the answer. It's our financial services operating system that lets you embed finance in weeks, not years. And it gives you the pre-built workflows and smart features to win customers for your platform. To find out more and get a demo, head to 11FS.com forward slash Foundry today. Temenos is the world's leader in banking software, helping over 3,000 banks serve over 1.2 billion people. Our purpose is to make banking better. Together with our community, we make banks more successful, individuals better banked, and society better served. With our software, banks can create more human, differentiated digital experiences, hyper-efficient business models to benefit the bank and their customers, and simplify and transform their back office. Our clients are the highest performing banks with cost-income ratios which are twice better than the industry average. Learn more at temenos.com. Hello and welcome to Fintech Insider Insights. I'm Sarah Kajanski. In today's episode, we're going to be looking at anti-money laundering or AML practices in banking and financial services and how they can be rethought. We want to lift the lid on the impact of the pandemic and the increase in digital services on AML. And to do that, we're going to look at the data sources that go into AML practices and why AML has a bad rep. And off the back of that, what could the future of AML look like? Um, to dig into this, I'm joined by some fantastic guests uh, making welcome returns to Fintech Insider. We have first up Liv Benesty, Global Head of Business AML at Banking Circle. Welcome back to the show. Great to have you. How are you? I'm doing well. So nice to be on another show and have you as the host. It's been a while. Yeah, it has. It's been far too long. Um, for those who haven't caught up with you recently, can you just remind listeners what it is Banking Circle does? Sure. So Banking Circle is a fully licensed payments bank. We provide multi-currency accounts, payments and FX, which results in faster, lower cost cross-border payments and banking services to financial institutions and payment service providers globally. Brilliant. Well, it's great to have you with us today. Um, we're also joined today by Sean Lewin, co-founder and head of client delivery at RegTech Associates and the founder of RegTech Women. Thank you for joining us, Sean. How are you today? I'm great. It's great to be back. It's been a while since I've done one of the 11FS podcasts, so it's nice to be here. Well, it's great to have you back. Um, can you just give us a quick overview or rather a reminder of what RegTech Associates does? Sure. So RegTech Associates is a research company specialising in researching the RegTech market. Um, RegTech just being a label, but it's basically technology that helps regulated firms meet their regulatory obligations, um, including anti-money laundering. So we get to see a lot of products and technology that can really help financial institutions um, up their game when it comes to AML. Brilliant. Um, well, and finally, and making her Fintech Insider debut, we have Natasha Vernier, co-founder and CEO at Cable and senior advisor at Fintrail. Uh, welcome to the show, Natasha. How are you today? Thank you. I'm great. It's, uh, it's wonderful to be here. Thank you for having me. Not at all. And um, before we get going, can you just give the listeners a quick overview of what Cable does? Sure. So we are a new technology company and we are saving banks and fintechs time and money by automating the testing of their financial crime controls. So we're the independent testing and assurance that regulated entities need, but we're doing it in a completely automated way. 
Brilliant. Well, thank you for joining us. It's wonderful to have you all on board. This is a really fantastic panel, so I'm very excited to get started. Um, so to kick off, uh, Banking Circle has actually recently released a research report on the subject of AML. So Liv, um, perhaps you can you can start us off with a quick overview of uh, perhaps the current status of financial crime and uh, AML in the UK and Europe. Just just a brief one. I know you could probably you could probably give me a, give me a dissertation's worth, but uh, if you could just give set the scene. Make it sound like I've been known to wax lyrical about AML for endless periods of time. Um, so a quick overview of what we found in the report, um, some of which probably won't surprise a lot of the experts that are listening. But the increase in digital services that have happened across financial services, but in particular as a result of the pandemic and the, the focus on being able to do things contactless and in a remote manner, um, appears to have increased financial crime. Um, and there are predictions such as setting the contactless limit above at £100 could lead to substantial increases in the rate of fraud and crime taking place across these sorts of channels. Um, and the fines that we're seeing are also commensurately higher. So that's the status of what we're seeing in terms of AML. Um, and then we went on to discuss what could possibly be done about that and where the role of new technology lies. So do, do the rest of my panellists, or Shana and Natasha, does that chime with sort of what you've seen in your in your roles as well? Yeah, definitely. Um, I went through last year and read uh, all of the fines given by the US and UK regulators for my sins. And uh, I, I sort of looked at the, the size of them and the reasons they were given and absolutely aligns with what Liv is saying. Um, there were at least $8 billion worth of fines given in 2020. And that was up from a at least three billion in 2019, so a huge increase. Wow, that's that's quite the sum. Um, Sean, did you have anything to add to that? Yeah, and I think it's, it's quite interesting that the US is really cracking down, but I think also we're seeing the the EU um, continue to uncover um, some of the infractions as a result of the the Danske Bank scandal. Um, yeah, it's absolutely a huge, huge problem. I was just reading the. The, um, the NCA, the National Crime Agency's latest report on the threat assessments. And, you know, it's it's estimated that over £12 billion in criminal cash is generated annually in the UK. So the scale of the problem is huge. And we're not doing the greatest job in terms of cleaning up um, after those bad actors. So there's still a lot to be done, I think, in terms of improving improving things. Can I just say that this is a brilliant panel, not least because I think this is probably the only three guests I've ever had who read reports as in-depth as I do and are prepared to sit down and read read a regulator's report from cover to cover. Um, We're you know, so much it, fun at parties, Sarah. I, I know, no, but we go to parties together. Why are you getting invited? That just doesn't happen when you're this person. <laughs> um, so just to pick up on your, your point though there, Sean, it sounds like so, you know, we have we have there's two sides to it. So there's AML. So there's actually an increase in anti-money laundering, but there's also an increase in people being fined for not, you know, cracking down on anti-money laundering. So would it be fair to say that the anti-money laundering practices that financial organisations have in place or perhaps their teams who are supposed to be enforcing them have a bit of a bad reputation? I would I would hesitate to classify it as a bad reputation. I think the scale of the problem and the complexity of the problem is really difficult. And actually, financial institutions are only part of the picture. So you need to look at, you know, the the crimes being committed in the first place and how they how they are then money laundering that money through to once financial institutions have done what they need to do in, in terms of suspicious activity reporting, how that's then fed through to law enforcement and how effective law enforcement is in following up on those criminals. So financial institutions, I think, sit 
in a, a really uncomfortable position. They have so much pressure placed on them in terms of AML controls. Um, I think where I wouldn't say it's a bad reputation, but I think it can sometimes seem, be seen to be a break on the business, particularly in, in the digital world where you want your customers to have, a, to have a really smooth journey in terms of onboarding and account opening. But because of the KYC, know your customer checks, um, that can often slow up the process. So there's sometimes perceived to be a bit more friction in the customer journey. Um, I think, you know, if anyone really thinks about what we're trying to achieve with anti-money laundering and they sit back and think about the real human harm that's sitting behind some of these crimes, you know, human trafficking, endangered wildlife trafficking, um, terrorism, firearm smuggling, drug smuggling. Um, it's not about the compliance. It's about actually preventing the, that really real human harm and suffering. And I think we don't necessarily talk about that enough when we're talking about anti-money laundering. It's sometimes just seen as a compliance burden and ticking a box. But I think the more we can humanise it, the more we can understand that this is a societal responsibility to help stop this from happening, um, the better, I think, the attitude internally towards AML and compliance teams. I've never sat in an AML com and compliance team. So perhaps, you know, Liv, you can, you can give a better in <laughs> insight <laughs> than me into actually what it's like and whether you have a bad reputation. Terrible reputation. I'm not sure whether that comes from being AML or not. <laughs> um, look, I think there is a natural, I don't want to say suspicion, but certainly a sort of I can't think of the right term, but within a business and you come in as the new head of AML, I think people are very keen to understand how rational you're going to be, how much of a risk-based approach you're going to take, how commercial are you, how aware of products are you, how can, how capable are you of being put in front of customers. And that is potentially because a few years ago you would have had, I'll say compliance, although financial crime tends to be first line now, which isn't quite the same thing, or certain financial crime functions are. Um, but it, it was seen as a bit of a blocker, sitting on another floor, um, never really coming into contact with the commercial. And I think that's changed. And I think it has to have changed in order to be successful at your role, especially within a fintech, um, but even, even at a large bank. So the better candidates for these sorts of roles are ones that build teams who are commercially minded, who do take a risk-based approach, who are rational, um, and aware of exactly what Sean said, which is what's the point of what we're doing here? It's not just the tick box, it's not collecting for the sake of collecting docs. It's not driving a customer mad just because we can. It's what are we realistically trying to prevent and are we likely to be doing so in these following acts? So I think there has been a bit of a, a wreck, um, but the, the people who are doing their job well now are very much getting rid of that and understanding that their role sits within the business partner. So, so would you say, based on what you've just just said, Liv, that, um, that to a certain extent, the people—if you've got the right people in place—this perception of AML and compliance more broadly, you know, hindering innovation and the development of the company and, and progress. Um, actually, it could be the opposite. If you've got the right people, they can help you move faster and more quickly through it, and perhaps be more innovative in in how you make sure that you are complying with any rules and regs that are, are relevant to you. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And I think it's more people, the right people on both sides of, of the coin, right, in the commercial side, but also on the financial crime side. If you've got the right people in financial crime, then they will be driven to um, benefit the company commercially and to take um, the right approach in dealing with customers and to, to remember and, and strive towards a good customer journey being 
the key for, for the company to thrive. Um, if they are also innovative and technologically minded, maybe they're not coders, but at least understand the possibility that technology offers to further improve processes, then more the better. Equally on the commercial side, if you've got the right culture in place, then there's an understanding that AML isn't an unnecessary blocker. There's a reason behind this. There's a purpose. There are ways of doing it well. And the more you coordinate and cooperate and the more they feel they can with that team, the better the process will be. So it's about generating that culture on both sides. Yeah, no, that, that makes perfect sense. Um, Natasha, I don't know if you had anything to add to that, because I know in, in a previous life, you have also sat within compliance teams at, at you know, financial institutions. So I wondered if that chimes with what, with what you've seen and, and, and know from your own experience. Yeah, I think it's an interesting, almost double-edged sword, because what Liv says is is true in uh, absolutely. Uh, the trouble is that when fintechs start, it's very difficult for the CEOs to really think ahead and understand that actually thinking about AML and incorporating it into the business plans and into the commercial plans and into the product plans will have this impact, this positive impact down the road. If you do all of those things, if you do include financial crime at the beginning, then it will reduce costs. It will mean that you can grow more quickly. All of those things that the CEO wants later on. But the trouble is that when you first start out, um, so often fintech CEOs think that financial crime is a compliance tick box exercise. And so they hire somebody who they often put in a corner and they do that, do those tick boxes. Um, and then perhaps a couple of years down the road, you get some regulatory scrutiny. And at that point, you kind of go one of two ways. The knee-jerk reaction is to hire somebody really, really experienced from a very traditional bank that looks great to the regulators. And unfortunately, that's often who the regulators want you to hire. But that can really then hinder ongoing innovation. And so it's really challenging and important for the CEO and the other executives and perhaps the board to get involved at that point and make sure that the person they do hire, whilst, of course, pleases the regulators and has all of the relevant experience, is somebody who can understand the commercial aspects of that fintech as well. So that that kind of that makes a lot of sense to me that you've you've got to have the right people in place to to make sure that you're you're being effective and also that you know you this this process and this whole scenario and department and function if you like isn't a blocker. But presumably there are other hurdles to you know you've got, you've got the right people in place. And I think one of the ones that gets talked about a lot is actually data and having the the right information in front of you to be able to make some of these decisions. Whether you know whether you're being compliant, whether you're accidentally letting things slip through, do you, do you, you know do you know what you're looking at? Do, do, do you think do you think that would be fair? Do you think that one of the problems that compliance teams have is that they, they just they just don't have access to the right information? Um, Natasha, you were nodding, so I'm going to let you go first on that one. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I've been speaking to a lot of fintechs and banks recently. Obviously, we're starting a business, trying to speak to all of our potential customers. I would say something like 98 or 99% of the companies I've spoken to, the financial crime teams do not have a single source of truth in front of them that has all of the financial crime data right there. And that is, in my mind, like one of the biggest blockers to effectively stopping financial crime. So you have these teams who are logging into an identity verification provider to understand what documentation a customer has provided. They're logging into a screening provider to understand uh, the PEP and sanction status of those customers. They're logging into a transaction monitoring tool to find out if they've been flagged for transaction monitoring. And all of these uh, disparate data sources not only make the job slower and less effective, but they also mean that the data that comes out of these systems is worse. So if you are not feeding in your identity verification information to your screening 
and the identity verification and the screening information into your transaction monitoring provider, then the results that come back will be worse. And that, to me, is one of the biggest issues. Um, um, Sean, maybe I'll bring you in there because in the work you do, you see an awful lot of organizations that are aiming to help, you know, fintech banks, everybody else, who you know, be compliant. Um, is, is that a problem that, that you see people crying out for help with? And, and do you see maybe organizations and, and, and companies starting to come in that, that are starting to solve some of those problems? Yes, absolutely. I think there are there's a couple of things here. And I think, you know, Natasha, you did a great job of explaining the problem, which is that things operate in silos. And they're not joined up. So the first thing that you need to do is join up that process and orchestrate that process. So you need the data, but then you need to orchestrate how it's going to be used. And we see there's a couple of great providers on the on the market who are both providing the data or aggregating that data and then orchestrating those those workflows to help that KYC and onboarding process. Then I think the the more interesting piece is. Um, when you get to thinking about all of the data that you have for KYC, um, from your screening, from your customer checks, from your IDMV, and then your transaction monitoring data, being able to join those together to really then start to take that overall view of a customer, not only at onboarding, but throughout the life cycle and all of their transactional activity, you can then start to do some really exciting things with that data from exploring it from a behavioral perspective you can bring in more um more advanced technologies like like ai and machine learning um but without getting that data foundation correct it's really difficult to then get those bigger and more interesting insights and i think even things like your customer data you know do you have the same um, name for that customer in all of your different systems. You need to think about entity resolution technology so that you know you're talking about Joe Blogs in one system is Jay Blogs in another, and they're the same person. So there's a huge amount of technology that can help get that foundational data piece right. And then there's technology that's, well, how can you get better insights and better use of that data in fighting financial crime? Yeah, we have this conversation quite a lot um, on the sister podcast I do, which is InsureTech Insider, and I get a lot of people trying to tell us about this amazing AI, you know, machine learning uh, software they've got that'll help with underwriting. And all the insurers go, "That's great, but we haven't got any da- clean data to give you, so we don't we don't need you yet. We, we need somebody to help us clean our data and put it in one place, and then we can talk to you about what we can do with it." Um, I just, you know, with that, I suppose related to that point as well, is there anything to be said about, um, you know, mo- modern technology and modern platforms? being able to help you, you know, you touched on that a little bit here, Sean, but widen the data you're using, widen the sources of data, you know, are there, are there, the, there are more different types out there? Or is this question really about making sure that the quality of the data is improved? Um, I don't know, Liv, you were nodding there. So maybe, maybe you have thoughts on this one. Well, I think it was interesting in that last um, block of conversation, we were talking about financial crime data. And I think that's almost part of the issue is that what isn't financial crime data. Um, so if we don't, implement or integrate financial crime and that approach and that team from the outset as an integral part of the wider ecosystem within a company within a financial institution then you're already setting yourself up for problems because they don't just need the data that comes from financial crime tools or the data that they generate in the course of anti-money laundering checks it's almost um relevant any touch point that they have with the organization as a whole, um, even sometimes what they do with customer services or what they're doing, how they interact, what products they want and how they're asking for those to be 
um, set up or implemented, that's all relevant. So there actually isn't anything that I would say specifically financial crime data um, that shouldn't or might not be relevant to that team. And unfortunately, when people are setting up financial crime functions, they do still tend to think of it as this function that does a certain set of tools and tasks, but does a certain set of tasks with a set of tools, and that those are distinct from anything else that happens in the organization. And it's just not true. And actually, if, for example, if you've got really good PM, then you can gain commercial insights from that, which should be able to help sales, help, help tech, help treasury. Um, but we, if we operate in that silo, as Sean said, then you're not going to get that coordination. So the point about pulling in other sources of data is, is a great one. Um, and in, you know, in RTM, we, we do look to external sources of data. For us at the moment, obviously, it's things like company registries or, or negative news or anything like that. It's still the traditional financial platform. But we can equally apply that and pull in stuff that's elsewhere in the organization. And if you don't create those touch points early on, it's very difficult. Yeah, go for it, Sean. Yeah, I was just going to add, there are, um, there are there's more and more data out there. And one of the things that is really interesting is with open banking and open banking for business, can you start then bringing in your accounting and transactional data as part of your, you know, your financial crime checks so you can detect unusual patterns of invoicing or, or accounts payable? Can you bring in more refined company classification information so that you can really hone in on the financial crime risk associated, not just with one huge cluster of, of companies in an industry, but, you know, really looking at SMEs, for example, small and medium-sized enterprises, and things like um, the deep web in terms of adverse media screening, being able to really search those sorts of um, data sources. I think the important thing, though, is is understanding how you're going to use that data and how that data is going to be helpful. There's no point in expanding your data sources if you are still processing it with spaghetti and, and, and string put together. Um, I think you really need to understand what data you need and how you're going to use it before you then start bringing in all of those disparate data sources. It is really important to rationalise it as well because you can take on, so, like you said, there's so much data out there. Um, and often, you know, I'll have people that be like, oh, you're doing really cool stuff in CM. Why don't you do this data source and this data source? Because like, it will overwhelm our analysis and it's actually not helpful. So you've got to do it in a measured way. Um, otherwise, it goes horrible. <laughs> yes, you can, have, you can have too much data. That is possible. <laughs> um, Natasha, did you just before we go to the break, did you have any final thoughts on this point about data and alternative sources and, and you know, what the best approach is for, for making sure you've got the right data, but you're not overwhelmed by it? Well, I was actually uh, really interested in something that Sean said there about, you know, could you bring in um, invoicing information and accounting information? And you start to actually get beyond what, at the moment at least, um, a financial crime team at a bank or a financial institution could do. And you start to get into, well, this is where really innovative reg techs come in. Like we need to start thinking beyond, okay, well, the regulation says we need transaction monitoring. Therefore, here is a transaction monitoring tool to really rethink this. Uh, real true innovation. How do we, if somebody was to come at this problem having never worked in financial crime and they were trying to solve this problem, not just for financial institutions because money laundering happens wherever there is a transfer of value, as I like to say, um, then actually it goes way beyond financial institutions. You're talking about art dealing and estate agencies and especially at the moment with the huge change in the financial ecosystem with DeFi and crypto and all of this, um, it goes beyond financial institutions and perhaps what financial crime teams at financial institutions can actually do. 
Okay, well, that's a good point for us to take a break because we're going to be talking about the future of uh, AML and AML processes after the break. I just want to, that was a, a brilliant point you made there, Natasha, because every time I think about AML, I, I forget what it stands for. And then I'm like, anti-money laundering. Wait, they're washing money? And then my mind goes to laundrettes. And then I'm like, oh, that's where it comes from. <laughs> so just to your point, it isn't all about bank, as you say, it's wherever money can change hands. Um, but as I said, we're just going to take a quick pause. We'll be back very shortly. This episode is brought to you by Visa, one of the world's leaders in digital payments. Visa's FinTech Fast Track program is a quick and easy way to connect to the Visa network and issue payment credentials. Whether you're an up-and-coming neobank, modernizing B2B payments, or launching a new crypto solution, amazing things can happen when your innovation is combined with the power of one of the world's largest payment networks. Learn more about the possibilities at partner.visa.com. Welcome back. So in this part of the show, we're going to be discussing the future of anti-money laundering uh, processes and, um, you know, what it can be considered or how it can be considered rather in the broader context of digital transformation. So um, I suppose there's a couple of things to pick up on here. One, you know, Natasha, I just wanted to pick up on the point that you, you started to talk about at the end of, of, of the last half, which is about how this isn't necessarily um just sort of a, a financial services, you know, it's not just a bank problem or an e-money license holders problem. It's it's broader than that. Um, I suppose how do you how do you think we start to tackle that? What where, where do we start with with kind of maybe getting everybody working together? Do we need a, a new set of rules that encompass different people? How do we, I suppose, make it collaborative? So a really good question. And it's really, really hard to answer it succinctly because uh, I don't know that there is a really easy answer to that. Um, ultimately, the incentives, I think, need to change. So at the moment, it's a very much stick-based approach. You have to do these you know, 10, 100 things that the regulations say. And if you don't, the regulators will come along and hit you over the head and give you a fine, maybe kick off a remediation project, etc. Um, and so ultimately, I think to actually make a difference here and to, to bring in quickly and happily the other industries where there is money laundering, where there is financial crime, but that currently are unregulated or perhaps don't have as many requirements in the anti-money laundering space, there needs to be a whole different incentivization method that makes them want to want to help stop financial crime. Um, I don't know what that looks like right now. I don't know how we do that. I don't know how we actually reduce the amount of financial crime at a global level without changing the incentives. Yes, I just had this visual picture of them having a big stick at the FCA to take to, <laughs> to, to take to people who break the rules. They don't do that, to the best of my knowledge. Um, Sean, I just wondered if you had any thoughts on, on that point about bringing in, you know, uh, businesses outside of financial, you know, explicitly defined financial services companies, particularly as I know that some of the organisations that you work with, you know, they, they work across the board. They're not industry specific. Yeah, I mean, they, they we, there are a lot of reg techs working in fin crime who actually are targeting um, industries like gambling and gaming, um, that are targeting um, the art market. The art markets are really interesting. It's only recently been brought into the the EU and Anti-Money Laundering Directive 5, I think it introduced it. Um, there I go, being a regulatory geek again. Um I think, and they and they don't see much difference between the technology that they need within real estate or legal and professional services or gambling and gaming as financial institutions need. They still need to do identity and verification checks. They need still need to do source of funds, source of wealth checks. So I think the technology is an enabler. I think the thing that we we tend to miss 
when we're having these conversations is that anti-money laundering regulation is all about a risk-based approach. And that means that you should be focusing your resources where you have the highest risk. And the problem that's, that we have at the moment in the system is that we're focusing the same number of resources on the things that have a low risk as we are on the high risk. And I think if we can really get to that much more refined risk-based resourcing um, of managing financial crime risk, we might be some way towards um, solving this problem a bit better, really thinking about it from that risk perspective rather than from a process and data perspective. Um, Natasha, you look like you've got something to say. <laughs> Absolutely. I was I was interested in your thoughts, Sean, on how how effective risk assessments are that set up those risk-based approaches. Um, and, and are we actually doing that at all well? You know, almost every bank, I think, or oh, might be wrong, does an annual risk assessment, probably in an Excel file. Um, the data that they take into that risk assessment is, you know, well, over the last year, we think we saw this kind of crime. We think that was the most crime, the biggest uh, the biggest crime, the worst crime, and therefore we'll probably see something similar again this year. And so we'll base our controls on those. How effective do we actually think that risk assessment is? And perhaps that's where we need to start. I just want to pause before Sean answers that question, because when you ask the question, Natasha, everybody on this podcast just gave a wry smile. <laughs> so, um, but Sean, Sean? Sorry, Sean, please go ahead. Um, I think it's a really good question because we talk a lot about efficiency. We don't necessarily talk about effectiveness. And I think those, if there's one thing in the whole world of anti-money laundering that I think is a real tick box exercise, it's those annual financial crime risk assessments. Um, no no offence to anyone on the podcast, Livia. Um, but I think they really, they by only doing it annually, you know, the world, we've just seen how quickly the world can change in the space of 12 months and how risk can change in the space of 12 months. I think you've hit the nail on the head, Natasha. I think that process needs to become more frequent, more driven by technology and ingestion of data to actively and dynamically test controls, which sounds like what you're trying to do at, at Cable. And I think the second thing is that's the overall risk assessment. The second piece is your customer risk assessment that should be part of your ongoing KYC process. You could be a low risk customer and not have your data reviewed for five years. You could massively change. You could become a money, a big, you know, money launderer in that time. And it would just not be picked up because your files are not reviewed for five years. So moving to a more dynamic view of risk and in a more dynamic way of monitoring that risk, both at a customer level, but at an institutional level, I think is really important. And the only way to do that is with technology. Liv, do you want to do you want to respond to that? Yeah. Um, firstly, I hate risk assessment, so I don't know who you thought you were insulting when you said sorry, Livia. I think that I just I hate doing most of those exercises. Um, for me, that the issue is when you're looking at where you're likely to find risk, you're doing it on a retrospective basis based off best knowledge at the time. Uh, which means that you're already a few years behind where the actual risk lies because the criminals are way ahead of us. So we know what could potentially introduce risk. We have typologies that are usually based off data from about years ago that are introduced from non-governmental organizations. And we're looking to say, okay, well, where is that a touch in my organization? So where should I be? 
And yes, to an extent, it, it's true. You know, the more remote you are, the less face-to-face contact you have. Potentially, there's a risk, um, and, and such, you know, issues like that. But we're always basing it off a, a retrospective perspective on what the industry looks like, and that's definitely a concern. So when we look at effectiveness, you've got that issue, and you've also got the fact of how do we actually know how much money laundering did go through our bank that we didn't find? How can you really look at the proportion of, of funds caught if you don't know what really went through? You only know what you found. Um, so I think in general, we do need to get better. And that the dynamic element is definitely key. I think onboarding someone at one point and not touching it again for five years and not considering the activity in the interim is probably um, one of the least efficient, effective things we do. It's really interesting because I remember having this conversation with a colleague at Monzo um, about is there just a percentage of the population that are financial criminals? Is it that that percentage is increasing year on year? Or is it just that, you know, there's actually a small, very, very small percentage of people who are likely to carry out crime? It's like, you know, I know how to go and steal a packet of sweets from the shop across the road. I'm not going to do it. And in a similar way that we all know how to go and launder money, but we're not going to do it. And so actually, the idea that my account is not being reviewed for five years actually makes a bunch of sense. That's probably the most efficient and effective way to handle low-risk customers. Um, I don't have huge net wealth, you know, there's no low, not, not lots of in and out going on with my accounts. Probably they should ignore an account like mine for five years. But it's how do how do we move away from here is a list of customer IDs that we check every one year, every five years, to based on this activity that is really boring, um, we shouldn't look at them for five years. So I think it's it's very interesting and we definitely need technology there. But you could argue that actually probably a really effective and efficient financial crime system in the future, there is probably quite a large pool of customers who don't get looked at for five years and that's probably good. It is good. The question is, how do you know which ones to look at? Because a lot of the crime is taking place through your average retail account, which when you open... Um, you know, at the, at the start of it, you expect to see a kind of low-level input of salary, output of rent, the occasional bit of shopping, and that's just your standard, um, you know, electricity bills, etc. And that stuff, in in many ways, maybe should be left um, alone. But there has to be some kind of trigger along the way to say, well, actually, maybe you do want to look at this, and that's where the tech comes in, so that you're not doing that for 99% of the of the cases. And ideally, you don't even think about it because your tech and your triggers are so good that all you need to do is look at that 1% where there is an indication. The struggle with that is that most money laundering looks incredibly like normal activity. Like we, we seem to, I think we, when we first come into this industry, or at least I do, think it's a completely different set of activity you can easily pick up on with a basic parameter. You can't. It looks incredibly similar to the norm. And so how do we get so specific that we can ignore the 99% um, and find value in the one? It was interesting. I was I was speaking to a client who um, who runs a financial organisation, um, um, uh, sort of in uh, another part of the world, and they said, you know, one of the biggest problems we have is that people, legitimate people in in this country, um, open bank accounts and then sell those bank accounts and access to them to other people because they can get more selling a bank account open under their legitimate name and just handing over to a criminal than they can earn in a year. And how on earth do we pick those people up? Because the people who are opening the account are perfectly legitimate. And and to Liv's point, the amount of transactions going through the account look legitimate as well because the 
person who's controlling that account also has 75 other accounts under different names and is pushing a little bit of money through each of those. And that's a very modern version of a very old form of financial crime to go back to having a, a you know, a laundrette and a, and a restaurant and whatever else is, you know, you see in the old, <laughs> the old mafia films. But, it, but it's true. It's, it's, it's very, very difficult to pick that up. I just wonder if, um, Sean, to get your point to pick up on, on what Liv was saying there, do you think the technology is there yet? Or do you think that this is something that we're talking about that either the technology isn't there yet, or perhaps maybe businesses aren't there yet? Maybe there's some internal process or cultural change that needs to occur before we can start looking at it with the lens that, that Liv and Natasha have discussed there. Yeah, I absolutely think the tech, the technology is there. I mean, if 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 you're close to the kind of KYC world, you won't have missed the new, the latest buzzword, which is perpetual KYC. Um, and that what, what does that mean, please? <laughs> so this is this is actually what Liv was was discussing was the ability to rather than have a periodic review of customer files every one, three, or five years, you have actually trigger based or event event driven. Um, review of customer files so when something changes that triggers you know something that's um, against normal customer behavior or expect expected customer behavior for example if you know if you if you were a company and you had a new director who was based in an offshore jurisdiction that could well be flagged as a as something that should be looked at in terms of the risk of that customer and that can happen at any time the data is available to do that. So, you know, there is a huge amount of um, external data providers who can bring that data in via APIs into your existing systems. I think the problem is marrying that external data with your customer data and your process across those various different silos. So in a way, it does come back to that readiness and the ability to integrate that with your legacy technology um, and it comes back to what you were saying as well Natasha for the newer fintechs if they think about this kind of compliance by design from the beginning they have none of these problems because they've already integrated that data and it's already all all, all joined up and they can do perpetual KYC thereby releasing people to deal with those more complex cases the cases that involve human judgment that are really high risk that are about connecting those 75 different accounts with a small amount of money going through each of them that look unusual. Um, there's link analysis technology that can help do that. You know, um, solutions like Context to do a brilliant job of linking different data together to give you that overall context. Technology is there. Um, I think we're just lagging behind in terms of the adoption of it. Go for it, Liz. Yeah. I think that part of it is that the technology is there, but they still have to operate within one institution on the whole, and that's a huge issue, um, right? Like I used to use the Madoff case in training all the time because it mostly took place within JP Morgan or affiliates of JP Morgan, but the broker dealer wasn't talking to the cash management, wasn't talking to private banking or personal wealth. And the money was all across those. And one arm closed it down, the other arm filed a SAR, the other one didn't have a clue what was in the account. But now you've got similar situations that people are using, just as an example, there may be something across Monzo, Asimo, Starling, Revolut, to use the big ones. And no one really has that visibility um, at present. And we don't have the infrastructure that allows us to have that visibility. So if you're pushing through small amounts, sometimes you can probably find it with an institution if you've got the right tools, but sometimes you won't. And you need to have that visibility across all of them to be able to identify those nodes where they're 
okay, there's small amounts of money going going around, but they all seem to circle and circle and circle and end up back at these three accounts. What's going on there? Um, and some people will do that within one institution and others will spread it, be, be smarter and spread it across lots because we're not there yet. No, totally. Fair enough. I mean, you sort of, but you both sort of touched on it, sort of, you know, where we're not, you know, we're not, where we're not yet, if that makes sense. But I guess my final question to all three of you is, what would you like to see happening in in, in the next few years? My notes say five to 10 years, but I'm not asking anybody to make predictions 10 years in the future right now. That just, that just feels, (laughs) just feels like he's asking for trouble. But, you know, you've touched on quite a few of maybe the issues that exist at the moment. Um, What would you like to see happening? It sounds like potentially more international collaboration or even, you know, national collaboration between organisations would be a good place to start. um, you know, maybe you have some ideas about how that could work or, or anything else, really, you know, a, a personal bugbear that you'd like to see resolved, um, you know, in, in the near future. I don't know if anybody has thought this through and wants to go first or people hate this question usually. <laughs> I uh, I do. I have thoughts here. I've been thinking about this a lot. And I actually think the original question of five to 10 years is the is the better one because uh, with the regulatory landscape we're in, it just takes so long to make these changes um, that actually if any of these things happen in the next five to 10 years, I think that will be a good time frame. Um, on my list are a couple of things. Um, so I mentioned it right at the beginning of the podcast, but I think we need to have some way to change incentives. Companies, financial institutions, but all companies that enable a transfer of value, they have to be incentivized to try to stop more crime. And at the moment, that just doesn't exist. And I don't think that we will really see a step change until that has changed. Um, I think that there needs to be a focus on effectiveness rather than the compliance tick box approach that we've talked about. If banks know how effective they are, if they know uh, what changes they make and how those changes make them a little bit more effective or a little bit less effective, then they can do more of them or do less of them. And that will really start to move the needle. And my my final thing on the list uh, is we need some like true innovation. I, I love what Sean is saying, and there's definitely a lot of uh, research that we could that I can go and do in that space, and perhaps um, I can have a chat with Sean afterwards. But I think that we're still stuck on building transaction monitoring and building KYC and building IDV. And I think that this industry, financial services, has changed dramatically over the last year, in particular with the um, with NFTs and DeFi, and it's going to continue to speed up. It's probably going to change quicker over the next two, five, 10 years than it has done ever before. And we're going to have to completely rethink what it even means to try and stop financial crime if we're going to keep up with the criminals. And that means probably stepping away from the buzzwords, stepping away from the ways that we are doing it right now and truly innovating, coming up with something brand new. And that's what I would love to see. And hopefully cable will be will be there. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that makes sense. And and yes, I, I appreciate that maybe five to ten years in the world of, of, of regulation probably isn't actually um that that unreasonable a time frame. Um Liv, you were nodding along with some of the things Natasha said there. What are what are your thoughts on this? Have you have you got any things that you'd like to see happen or resolved, be resolved? I usually nod along with what Natasha said. It's usually incredibly insightful. Um so that's not rare. But I think um some of the things that we've touched on around Data share, well, I hate saying data sharing causes so much kind of friction. Um, but there is something to be said for the fact that we can't only focus inwards on an organization by organization basis. Let's put it that. Um, there are equally dangers with us sharing um, suspicions or informations more widely that could lead to certain types of 
inclusion and we should not neglect to mention them. Um, but certainly inward looking at the institutional level is not helpful because nothing exists on an institutional only level in finance where it's becoming increasingly frustrating. Um, so that's, that's key. I think along the lines of the tasks that we spoke about for, for you know, AML teams or compliance teams, um, risk assessments and effectiveness controls um, needs to be looked at. It's everyone's worst task. Like none of us enjoy it. And it's being done in a way where you have huge confirmation bias. So if you look for where you've seen PEPs, did you properly identify those PEPs? Or what about where you didn't identify them? But that's the 90% that you're not going to look there. So we have really bad processes. And I think tools that are looking into that, like what Natasha is building, are going to be key for first of all, taking away some of the more painful and pointless parts of our of our job and actually pointing us in the right direction. Um, and thirdly, I think this step away from kind of tr traditional, looking at things in terms of TM and KYC, as Natasha said, what we might need to do is take the step back and just look at it in terms of data and the use of data. And again, it's such a uh, overdone word, I guess, but looking at it as just different parts of data and how it can be integrated and work together is really key as opposed to how do I do this for TM? How do I do this for KYC? How do I do that for sanctions? It's actually just data and how you use it across one platform. Brilliant. And um, Sean, how about you? Any any thoughts? Well, I'd like to offer a couple of glimmers of hope, actually. Um, <laughs> well, that's a nice note to finish on. <laughs> um, I think we, we are... And for the last few years, actually, we have started to see some attempts at collaboration, cross-industry collaboration around, certainly around data data sharing in safe and secure ways. And one example I would highlight is Invidem, which is a KYC utility in the Nordics. It's a consortium of seven Nordic banks. Um, and it's a, a data sharing platform with both corporates and, and banks sharing KYC data according to a set of agreed standards. So not only have they managed to get some banks together, they've got them to agree to some data standards, and now they're they're sharing that data very effectively. And the corporates are on board because it makes their life easier because they only have to share their their data once in this platform. And from talking to them recently, they in Videm are getting a lot of inquiries from other banks who want to join. So potentially there may be a, a snowball effect from that. I think the other glimmer of hope is actually coming from some of the regulators who, and if we think about the, the FCA, who've been really advanced in their thinking around innovation in terms of financial crime. I mean, they did a tech sprint exploring privacy-enhancing technologies and how it takes a network to find a network. They've had ideas around traveling algorithms that can go from one financial institution to another trying to find those types and typologies of financial crime to speed up that risk assessment process. I think there's a lot of thinking and really good things around this, but it, it's, you know, collaboration isn't just about talking, getting together, it's about action. So my biggest hope, I think, for the next five to 10 years would be seeing some of this brilliant thinking transfer into action and building some of this this technology and getting financial institutions to come together and perhaps other industries as well to help tackle this, you know, collaboratively. 
Um, I just love the image of a traveling algorithm. Um, yeah. But that's, <laughs> yeah, that sounds brilliant. Um, and that's a great point uh, to leave today's show on. Um, so thank you all so much for joining me. Where can people find out more about you and your companies? Uh, Livia? Uh, best place to find me is on LinkedIn and Banking Circle on the website. Perfect. Sean, how about you? Um, also on LinkedIn, I'm also on Twitter at The Reg Doctor. And if you want to find out more about RegTech Associates, it's rtassociates.co. You can sign up for all of our insights around the RegTech market. I'd also say that Sean's other um, side hustle, I suppose, and not maybe even a side hustle anymore, RegTech Women, is a fantastic organisation if there are any ladies out there who are interested in this area and perhaps also interested in meeting up occasionally for a conversation over a glass of wine. We promise that we won't necessarily always discuss the latest reports. Um, um, men are also welcome, by the way, Sarah. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> if there's anybody interested in joining a really friendly group of people who like to talk about regulation and drink wine, um, then, you know, definitely look out that. <laughs> definitely look out Reg Tech Women. Um, Natasha, how about you? Yeah, sounds like I need to join that, Sean. Um, yeah, I'm uh, on Twitter at Natasha Vernier and on LinkedIn. And Cable is at cable.tech, um, where you can find all about Cable and also an ebook we've just written on how to actually build and scale a financial crime team. Brilliant. Um, perfect. And you can find me on Twitter at Sarah Kachansky. Thank you so much for listening. If you like what you've heard, subscribe to the podcast and don't forget to leave us a review. It helps to make it better and it does help others to find the show. As always, if you want to join the conversation, you can find us on social media. Just search for 11FS or Fintech Insider, or you can email podcast at 11FS.com. Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.